All right. Why don't you turn to Malachi chapter 2, please. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is an incredible prophet. In view of the message that he gives, it's the last one. And if you think of um, the message of educators and the message of psychologists, they always say you've got to end up with a positive. Really? They haven't read Malachi. Um, He just gets down on the people of God who have been so treacherous towards God, towards their wives. These um, first two chapters, it's repentance in view of their sin. The last two, repentance in view of the Lord's coming. And yet, regardless of what God is doing at the time, His His word is always to turn people to Him. And it's always to turn away from sin. But somehow men try to uh, shy away from proclaiming the truth of the word and the truth of the day they are living in because the pressures from outside are always pressed upon us. Our society is uh, being molded and shaped by educators, by those who are in the public influence and interests like um, doctors, um, lawyers, judges, And when you have those main pillars of society that are being influenced by secularism, that is void of a belief in God, then you have a complete shift in the culture and in the nation that goes from that which is looking to God to that which has turned its back upon God. Now, there has never been a time when The United States has been a Christian nation as a whole. But certainly you cannot deny, if you've ever studied the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Federalist Papers, or been to Washington, D.C. and seen all the monuments and read those scriptures, the history of the Founding Fathers, and deny that... Our nation is founded upon the Judeo-Christian principles and the God of the Bible. The very money you hold in your pocket says, in God we trust. And so, the same way Malachi is getting in the people's face here in Hebrews, I mean, in the, the, the Hebrew nation. They've had a long history. Um, You have 2,000 years from Genesis to Abraham. Abraham to um, Jesus is 2,000 years. He has schooled them. He has ministered to them. He He has chastened them. He has put them in captivity. He has restored them. He has directed them. He has sent them prophets. He has judged them. He has done all this. They can't deny it. And yet, as we study the history of Israel, time after time, generation after generation, there are always people who choose to walk with God and those people who do not. If you look to the book of Judges there with the book of Ruth, uh, a time when everyone was doing that, which was right in their own eyes, here you have this small group of people that are serving God, just joyous in the Lord. They greet each other. Lord bless you. (laughs) They make a choice. And so each person today has to make choices whether they're going to walk with God or not, whether they're going to go the liberal way, whether they're going to go the way that the world twists morality and ethics and everything else, or whether they're going to live the way God wants them to live. It's always a choice, ladies and gentlemen. And so here in chapter 2, Malachi continues to address the priests who had been the worst violators of God's word as God continues to call them to repentance again in view of their sins. To those that much is given, we've seen this before, much is required. 
And so here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, you have the curse against the priest because it began in chapter 1 with they being the greatest culprits. He says, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. So the priests are addressed regarding the curse here. The priests were those who were in the service of God, the mediators between God and man. You have the high priest, which is the ultimate mediator, portraying a type and a symbol of Jesus Christ to come. And you have the serving priests in the families of, of the Levites, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. And if you go through the Old Testament... They divide up their works of those who would um, go in and prepare the furnishings and covering them. And then the next one would take down the tents, the pegs and all that. And then those who would carry the ark, the ark would be carried. And so all the distribution of the duties were given to these three families. And if you look to the book of Numbers as God sets up the nation and how they would camp and how they would break down the camp and how they would head out, it was all very orderly. Everybody knew I mean, it was just in, in, in the center of, of, of society was God, the tabernacle. And then the respective tribes in semicircle all the way around, depending on their order. And it was just one well-oiled machine. If you've ever been to any of our medical outreaches, whether it be in Mexico or in Nicaragua or wherever we've gone, the Philippines... God in His grace has put this whole triage team together for years. And they know exactly what to do. They hit the ground and they just start setting up camp and they start destroying everything else. And God just makes it flow. God directing, God guiding people who are responding to the call of God, who are yielding to the work of God, who are there to serve the people of God. They're not there to glory or anything else. And they're looking to the Lord and giving them all the glory. That's what it's all about. It's real difficult when we start seeing success for us to not take the glory for it. That's always the greatest temptation. And yet here the priest. uh, They're warned in a twofold regards there. Because they're not giving glory to his name. If you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart. To give glory to his name. So in other words, they were defaming the name of God. They were not doing the right thing towards him. The authority is by the Lord of hosts in verse 2. They're captain of the armies of heaven. He would send a curse upon them and he would curse their blessing. In fact, he says, yes, I've already cursed it. So these are the curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 that God gave to Israel. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. You always look at Leviticus 26 also for the blessings and cursings. So whenever you have these type of blessings and cursings, it goes back to the Levitical law. And God keeps his word. He, God's not uh, interested in threatening us. He's just interested in warning us and promising that if you do this, you will do that. Often as parents, we tell our children, you know, if you do that, I'm going to get you. And we've all seen little Johnny at the store, right? And he's just acting up, grabbing cracker and throwing on the ground and grabs another thing on the ground. And mama says, no, Johnny, don't do that. One more time. It's already been a hundred times. Johnny knows he has 250 times before mommy will do anything. Well, God's not like that. If he says one more time and you do it, it's over. Now, God alone knows how patient he is with one person in contrast to the other. God gave 120 years to the people in the days of Noah. Did you think he loved them more than he does to someone who he warns for a month and then he disciplines them? No. God deals with each one of us the way he sovereignly chooses and he knows what he's trying to do. He loves the whole world. That's why he died. That none would perish. Now, we make mistakes on how to discipline our children. And we really um, mistrain them. We teach them to disobey or to at least put off their obedience till 
they know that we're really serious. God is not like that. Not at all. The reason he gives is because you do not take it to heart. Here God is seeking and desiring repentance. As you look to the book in 2.16, 3.7, 3.16, 4.2. Repentance, repentance. That is the key word to the gospel. Now many today in the emergent church are seeking to stay away from the word repentance and sin. Because they don't want to be so negative. They don't want to feel, make people feel bad. Well, God's not interested in how you feel. He's interested in how are you living in relationship to God. And if you don't feel that good about it, it's okay. Just obey in faith and let your feelings catch up to your obedience. Feelings mean nothing. By feelings, you make the dumbest mistakes and the dumbest decisions in your life. When you make decisions based on objective truth, you always hit the bullseye. So God says, here's my word. It's absolute truth. Obey it. You'll be blessed. 100%. In verse 3, he says, Behold, I will uh, rebuke your descendants and spread refuge on your faces the refuse of your solemn feast, and one will take you away with it. Pretty severe. He would confirm their spiritual defilement to effect. God would rebuke their descendants and reject them by defiling them with all the inner uh, intestines and all the stomach lining and all the uh, the excrement, if you will, of the animals that would be carried outside the camp. And he says, you are so defiled, I'm only going to affirm your defilement. I'm going to take that stuff and I'm going to rub it all over your face. Wow. Now, is God mean? No, he's the epitome of holiness. And these people are are mocking God. They're They're doing a disservice to the holiness of God. And they're being arrogant about it, very sarcastic as we've seen already through some of the book. Verse 4 through 7, the covenant of God has with Levi is given here. He says, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. You see, because these ones that have not repented, these priests, they're going to be taken outside the camp at the end of verse 3, just like all that refuge stuff. He rejects them. And they will will affirm that God is doing this. It's not coincidence. Uh, This is my covenant with Levi. So he not only chastens the ones that are offending God in their sin, but also he gives opportunity for those who are not quite there or whatever it may be, that they might repent. Always. Now, if you're not a parent, some of you young guys and young ladies, you will be. And um, your, your child will test you. They will try you. They are going to push the envelope to see how much you will take before you will be a faithful parent. <laughs> And when you set boundaries, if you are consistent towards your children, they will be much happier. The home will be much happier. (laughs) And things will run smoother. Never perfect. You've got two imperfect parents and imperfect children. But instruction and discipline makes a big difference. When you remove consequences from society or from your home, you open your home and society to destruction. You remove consequences, you destroy all authority. That's for you as a parent, for you as husband and wife, 
for you as a child of God. Very, very important. So the Levites would know that it's God who sent them. It's not coincidence. And he's giving chance. The Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. In verse 5, he says, My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth. And injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. And so the covenant of God with Levi here in verse 5, life and peace, salvation. In Numbers chapter 1, he deals with them. In chapter 3, in chapter 25, Deuteronomy 33, all the different things. He just, um, he deals with the Levites. That as they offer sacrifice, as they obey God, as they, they respond obedience to God, then they get the blessings of life. They have peace in their life. They have God's hand upon their life. And that's always the best. He gave them to him that they might fear the Lord, revere him, respect him, honor him. Notice the covenant of God affected his life in verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth. I don't know what you came out of. I don't know what you were into. I don't know how you were before you came to the Lord. But if you take where you were and you progress it forward in the time and the years that you've had in the Lord, where would you be right now? What kind of person would you be? Who would you be hanging out with? If you got married after you came to the Lord, who would you have married if you would have stayed in the world? What kind of home would you have? Now, we know that sometimes as Christians, some Christians flake out and betray their husband or wife. So it doesn't mean that because we're Christians, everything is perfect. It doesn't mean that there are no troubles. But the most important thing is that regardless of what's ahead of my life, that I be obedient and faithful to walk with God in spite of what happens. That's the important thing. I don't say, well, I quit you, God, because, you know, you didn't bring me a wife. You know, you let me... Get thrown in jail. I mean, all I did get drunk and hit a car. I mean, what's the problem? And all these kind of things go on, right? But look at what God has done in your life if you walked in obedience. Hear the Levite truth in his mouth. That's what is in your mouth that comes out of your mouth. What used to come out of my mouth was not the word of God. But it is amazing, the minute I was born again, my mouth cleaned up because my heart cleaned up. You see? Makes a big difference. Injustice was not found in his mouth. Well, we used to be a certain way, and now all of a sudden we're under different management. Now we know right from wrong. Now, we might have known right from wrong, but we didn't do the right all the time. But now, as a Christian, we choose to try to do the right by God's grace. There's a passion, there's a desire, there's a purposeful intent, which is far different. As the Spirit of God is in us. He walked with God in peace and equity. In other words, you have nothing to hide. You're not looking around before you do something, you know? He turned many away from iniquity. Before perhaps you were the life of the party, you, you were the one who corrupted people. You know, this guy's never been drunk. We're going to get him drunk. We'll get him good. And then we'll get him a big old tattoo on his back when he's all drunk. You know, stuff like that. And now everybody laughs about it. Now you're 
warning people. You're telling people about the Lord's coming. You're telling people that God can change their life. You're, you're encouraging people first by your life, then by your words. What a big change. This is Levi that he's talking about. In verse 7, he says, For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The covenant gave, given to Levi had certain responsibility towards God. His lips of the priest to keep knowledge, studying, knowing God's word. Second Timothy 2.15, we're to study to show ourselves approved. A workman that needs not to be, uh, you know, uh, it's approved to God, rightly dividing the word of truth. So you know God's word. Before you, maybe, you, you know, you, you were a sports buff, you know what I mean? And you, you know these basketball, baseball, you know their batting average, you know the days, you know every, I mean, you, you now you know your Bible better. Wow, what a great difference. <laughs> because you study the word of God. And now you're able to give people. You study God's word. People should seek the law from his mouth to be taught by him. Leviticus 10, 11, Deuteronomy 17, 9 through 11, and many others. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the word of God is brought for doctrine, correction, and instruction that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work because it's God-breathed, it's inspired by God. Inerrant, infallible. So now people call you up, but your friends that you still minister unto and pray for, you know, they get in trouble, they call you. They'll make fun of you, they'll whatever, but then when they are in trouble, who do they call? And you'll pray for them and you'll share with them and some of them will come to the Lord and some will not. And some, regardless of the times that they call you over and over again, they still won't come to the Lord, but you never know. You don't get offended. You continue to minister to them if they're open. I've told you about my friend Joey Hernandez, 40 years. Prayed for him, 40 years visited his mom and him. And then she dies, I bury her, and he comes to the Lord. <laughs> How long you've been praying? How long you've been ministering to people? It's not against us they are rejecting Jesus Christ. So we need to be open. And by the way, if you're a parent, your kids are watching you. They're hearing you. They just think that you're spiritual and they think that you're the greatest parent in the world. Don't disappoint them. It's important. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Notice that. Malachi 1.1, the messenger. 2.7.3.1. John the Baptist is going to be coming. The messenger of the Lord, the forerunner. In verse 8 and 9, you have the uh, accusation by God for the priest violating their responsibilities. He says, but you have uh, departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. Uh, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. They've departed from the ways of the Lord. The only way you can know the ways of the Lord is if you know the word of the Lord. The will of God is found in the word of God. One of the greatest failures of the pulpit, and then we, it was in the previous verse, is that pastors don't study, pastors don't teach expository, pastors don't, don't, don't put the time in the study to be able to feed the flock of God. They just get up and they just talk. And so people don't grow, they don't develop spiritually, they don't mature. And if we did that, our nation would be so much ahead you know, when Pastor Chuck first started teaching in the early, the late 60s, when he started in Costa Mesa, mid-60s on, the, the, the level of Bible knowledge was so low 
that he used to teach on Sunday night 10 chapters at a time. An overview. Okay? Because people couldn't take that much. So he started them light. Then, as you know, the second time he went through the Bible, he slowed down and did five chapters at a time. The last time he went through it, he'd go about two chapters, three chapters at a time. Because the tolerance and the knowledge rose high. We are now, I was just driving the other day down the freeway and thinking about it. We're almost at the place that we have to go back to teach basics because the Christian church is so illiterate. They are so ignorant of God's word. So many people that have come here and they move to another state or another place, the hardest thing they have is to find a church that teaches the Word of God. And it's embarrassing that, that the Word of God should be taught over every pulpit every time that pastor comes out, verse by verse, chapter by chapter whether it be expository verse by verse like this in general commentary or in-depth study like I do on Sunday morning or Thursday night. You have to have vegetables. You have to have some soup in there and some meat. And, you know, I, I mean, everything balanced so you can grow, develop, and mature. It takes time. You don't just casually read. But here, um, in verse 8, they depart from the way and they cause many to, um, to stumble at the law. So now they're contrary. They no longer follow the Lord but their own ways. They cause other people to stumble rather than pulling them out. They have corrupted the covenant of Levi. They're just, it's an insult to God. They're saying they serve the Lord but they're offering ill, sick animals blemished animals and they they don't even want to do the work and God said why don't you just shut the door and don't even come in wow the consequences therefore I also have made you contemptible and based low before the people for God to um, to humble me and to humble you is no problem in one thousand of a second, he can take my breath from me. In one thousand of a second, he can just chastise me severely. The reason is twofold in verse 9, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. The minor prophets, Micah, Amos, many of them. When you come to verse 9 there, it says, Therefore I also have made you contemptible and base before the people. Again, the ways, the partiality. And if we, don't, if we don't stay in the word of God, if we don't stay faithful to uh, wait upon God and to seek God, then pretty soon we just start calling the shots the way we think and and, and then we'll just favor some over the others. And we always have to keep that in mind. You know, when people want to speak to you, do are you more patient with those who you like more than those who bug you? Uh, when people want prayer, are you are there for, if you're a man, for all the women, but men you don't? I hope you're straight across. All those things are the capacity in our sinful nature. We have a new divine nature by God's grace, but we also have the old nature. And if we are not walking in the Spirit, we will walk in the flesh. So our confidence in each other is not in each other, but in our yielding to God to walk in the new man, the new woman, to walk as a new creature. That my desire is to please God, to be used by God, to honor Him. And that I present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, which is a reasonable service. Now, no, no, one, no one 
is 100% right on all the time, but we're pressing towards the mark. We keep our accounts short. We stay current with God and we look to Him. Very, very important. When you come to verse 10 down to 17, you have the disobedient people now indicted. The prophet speaks here to the people in the third person. Of course, the, um, the priests are also included because they are part of the people. He's addressed this priest specifically. In verse 10 and 12, we have the people who are being unequally yoked. We touched this section in depth this morning. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get it. Therefore, I also, I'm sorry, verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Rhetorical questions that the answer is yes. Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Not only the covenant of being the people of God and being related to God, he created them and he, and he put the nation together as uh, the book of Exodus uh, uh, speaks very clearly in 19 verse 5 and many other portions throughout the minor and, and the major prophets. But but um, here again, they had just become treacherous to the covenant and he's leading into the covenant of marriage and their relationship to God was a covenant of marriage. It's very, very clear that the Bible says through the prophets, major, minors, through the law, that Israel is the wife of God, that he married her. In fact, he put her away by divorce, Jeremiah tells us, because of her unfaithfulness. The book of Hosea is a vivid picture of Hosea being called to marry a prostitute to redeem her wife who went into prostitution. And to redeem her when nobody would buy her anymore. And that to keep her sanctified for a time for she would be for him and him alone. And it was a message to the nation of Israel that God would reconcile her in the future. Wow. Notice. God accuses them of dealing treacherously with one another. This is nothing new as Solomon in First uh, Kings 11, 1 and 2 was told not to marry any of the unbelieving women on, in the land, Ammonites, Hittites, Jebusites and all those ites. But um, he was just, you know, you're famous, you're wealthy. You've got all the wisdom in the world. And um, you could be as ugly as sin. And women would still flock to you. Because of the money. Because of the popularity. Because of the position. It's simple. But he didn't pay heed. And the women stole his heart away. To serve other gods. He built idol temples on the Mount of Olives. He worshipped them. Amazing. The book of Ezra. Chapter 9 verse 1 through 9. Speaks about the unequally yoked marriages also. The heathen that leaves the land. Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 26 through 29. Now. When I first got saved, I was 23 years old. And um, since that time, I've seen many people make bad mistakes as they begin to date non-believers. There used to be a young lady that came here, beautiful young lady, faithful, godly, served the Lord just diligently. And through the years, she began to get up and age a little bit. And she decided to go fishing. And she found her catch. But she's not walking with God. 
I think of Leslie Phillips. Some of you may remember her. A little cute little blonde. Way back in the early 80s. Great voice. God used her. But she, she's talented but not enough to make it to the Christian. So she went to the secular. Her name today is Sam. She has a singing career. She married one of her managers. And I've often thought about her. To give her a call. But how many have been just detoured from following God? Walked away, turned her back on God for some man, some woman. And um, it's tragic, settling for second best. Judah dealt treacherously, act of deceit, unfaithful. In verse 11 there, committed abominations in Jerusalem. Leviticus, there's a lot of things that are said to be an abomination to the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, Leviticus 19.22. Now, what do, what do, quote, quote, Christian churches do with that when they say that homosexuals or lesbians can be Christians? What do you do with that? It's just Old Testament, you throw it out? You can also find the um, command for man and a woman to be married, not two men or two women in the New Testament. It's real simple. Okay? A woman should not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 22.5 Transvestites. But our society says, hey, nothing wrong with it. Curse is the one who makes a carved or molten image an abomination to the Lord, the work of his hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen, Deuteronomy twenty-seven fifteen. And you can punch in your computer abominations. You'll get all kinds of what abominations are to the Lord. The word abomination means that a detestable thing, that which just repulses God because it contorts and distorts his created order, his design. Very, very important. In verse 11 there, Judah profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves, which is marriage. They married the daughter of foreign gods. Very clear, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, we're to be in the world, but we're not of the world. The boat belongs in the water. It's when the water gets in the boat that the boat gets in trouble. All right? We're not to be isolated. We're to be insulated with God's word. We are to be the salt of the earth, light, minister. But I don't fellowship with non-believers all the time to allow them to suck me in and defile me and corrupt me. I may be with someone who really doesn't know me and they start just getting a little bit out of hand. I say, you know what? I got to be going, man. Pleasure meeting you. Take care. I don't say, you dirty scum bucket heathen. I can't believe. No, no, you don't do that. But you know when to bow out, Right? That's the discretion that you have. Very, very important. So, you're there praying for the non-believer and, and, and you minister to them, but you don't hang out with them all the time. And that's why dating is so important that you date only believers. 
not non-believers. And even in dating, you have to be careful because, let me tell you, your flesh is your flesh. And so unless God is really directing you to be serious for with a, with, with a young lady or a young man, then don't be messing with the equipment. It's just that simple. Anything below the neck is out of boundaries. Put your arm around her shoulder. That's it. You can go. You can go up to the top of her head. That's it. Simple. But see, people want to see how far can I go before I'm out of the yard. As a Christian, are you a Christian? Then why are you asking that question? You can't play the world's games. It'll be much worse for you as a Christian. When you're in the world and you play the games, it's a whole different thing. Now, still destruction. But when you're a Christian and you're going against the light that you know, there's a greater judgment. The consequences are different. Very important. There's the, with this command comes the promise in 1 Corinthians six seventeen through 7, 1. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be a son and daughter, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit perfecting holiness and the fear of God. So the things that you used to do and participate and look at and everything else, it kind of didn't bother you. Nah, you know, what the heck? It's just that. Now all of a sudden, you've got a renewed conscience, a renewed heart. You've got a, a standard that's far different from the world. They think you're crazy. They think you're ripping yourself off. They think you're not living. Man, that's not living. That's dying. That's okay. Let me tell you, after you die, you're in heaven, they're in hell. They're not going to be saying the same thing. But I guarantee you they'll say that way before they get to hell. Because sin becomes very destructive. It doesn't take long. You don't have to get that old for sin to destroy your life big time. That's why people take their lives so much today. It's a hopeless generation. Despair. Wow. And so God would cut them off who were guilty, being fully aware of their sin, awake and aware, it says. And they still come and offer sacrifices to God, verse 12. So they're not only doing this against the light they have in their consciousness, but they, they even come to offer the sacrifice to God. And they're, they're all corrupt and polluted, treacherous. Their conscience is seared like a hot iron in First Timothy 4, 2. We're to have a good and a pure conscience before God. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 3, 9. We have to recalibrate our mind to the word of God. Your conscience is not sufficient. Your conscience can be seared, calloused. You have to recalibrate it with God's word. You know, those trucks, they get these big trucks, right? And then they go put big tires on them, right? And you're trucking down the freeway and your speedometer says 65 miles an hour. Well, you've changed the ratio. That, that speedometer is not accurate anymore. When that cop pulls you over and he tells you how fast you were going, he said, no, I look and that, you're not lying. You just have deceived yourself. Because those wheels are not calibrated to that speedometer. Your conscience in the world is not calibrated to God's word. When you're born again, you must calibrate your conscience to the word of God. Then you will experience life. Enjoy life. Then you will please God. Wow. Verse 13 through 15, the people were divorcing their wives. He says, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with your tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with good will uh, from your hand. 
So here again, the, you know, they're crying, they're weeping at the altar, and they're moaning and groaning, as the words declare here. And, um, you know, but God's not taking pleasure in this. It's hypocritical. It's, 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 um, it's remorse. It's, uh, you hate, you regret the consequence, not the real sin that you've committed. You know, it's kind of brought some difficulties on your life. Kind of just put you out of commission for a little bit or, but you, you'll get over it. Next week you'll be back to it. And so, he doesn't receive it with goodwill, with pleasure from their hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Here comes the sarcasm. Disrespect, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so, in verse 14, Malachi quotes their dishonorable, sarcastic words. God had witnessed their treacherous conduct toward their wife, divorcing them to marry another most likely younger, pagan women who don't love the Lord, who do not hold the sacredness of marriage up to par. You look at the world and the different arrangements that people have for marriage. You know, in the mid-60s, it started coming in, and towards the end, wife swapping and everything and different things, and it doesn't stop, it keeps progressing. You have open marriages today, you know, where you're married, but you both agree that you can have other sexual encounters and all that. And what kind of, it, it's just amazing how men and women degrade themselves. All the different arrangements and everything. And all the kids are listening to this and looking at this and learning this corruption. So they become more corrupt than the adults at a young age. Now you understand why God told Joshua and Moses. Well, Moses didn't enter, but Joshua and them. When you enter the land, you kill men, women, and children. Because they were so vile and so corrupt that if you let those children live, they're already so perverted, they will corrupt your people. Wow. If you talk to a fifth grader today in casual conversation and you listen to what they believe about life sex and everything else you would be shocked they're so corrupt teenagers in high school sit around even junior high school at the quad looking at pornography on their phones Kids having sex in the bathroom. Teachers know that. Wow. How long will God put up with us? Amazing to me. God is witnessing all this. Verse 15 says, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Here's another rhetorical question. He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treachery with the wife of your youth. So God warns that these guys are, you know, they're marrying non-believing women, divorcing their wives. Treachery. Companion. From youth and all of a sudden you trade her in on a new model. God gets down on the man because the man's the initiator. The man's the one that has the authority and power over the woman at this time. Now the culture has changed a lot here. Now there's a lot of feminists and, and, and there's a big move for women to, that are leaving their husbands today. It's swapped around. But what is the destruction and divorce to the home, to the woman, to the man? Who's the losers? The children. So what's going to happen to the next generation? It keeps getting lower and lower and lower. It's amazing to me. Verse 16 says, For the Lord, God of Israel, says, 
that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. He hates divorce. The only reason divorce is allowed, again, you can get the tape, or the tape, not that we don't do tapes anymore, CDs. Um, I didn't say VHS. Four tracks, eight tracks. But um, Jesus made it very clear and confirmed what the Old Testament was that there's only one ground for divorce, and that is adultery. Now, in the Old Testament, if there was adultery, the man or the woman was stoned to death. There was no need to discuss any other issues. Okay? The live person was able to marry another. Are we clear on that? Okay? When Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees in Matthew 19, verse 1 through 10, basically, they um, confronted him trying to trap him. And he says, you know, is it lawful to put away the wife for every cause? You know, the uh, liberal Hallel said you could divorce your wife for any reason, whatever it was. As I said this morning, burns your bagels, you know, yells at you, whatever. Uh, Shemaiah was a conservative. He says only adultery. Apart from that, the Jewish law was if a man was impotent or he had, was lep- uh, had leprosy or he, if he was insane. Okay? But they had taken the law in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 that Moses had given us a concession. Say, why did Moses give a right in a divorce? He didn't give. He gave a, a, a very decent, orderly manner to protect society and to protect the woman. It says there, if a man finds some uncleanness in his wife, the uncleanness there is not stipulated. Now, it cannot be adultery because adultery is already punished by stoning the death, right? So whatever it means, it's not talking about adultery. All right? Now, For a woman or a man to commit adultery, you don't have to have full-blown sex. If you're involved sexually with somebody else, okay, the word is pornea. We get our word pornography from it. Pornea involves every sort of sexual activity, which is adultery giving your affections to another that is not your wife or husband, all right? Jesus said the only reason for for divorce is if your husband or wife commits adultery. Then that person is free from that marriage and can marry another. The guilty party cannot. If that person repents and you want to forgive them, your mate, you can forgive them and be reconciled. It's not a command, it's an option. If you choose to walk away from it, there is no guilt, there is no shame, there is nothing on you. You are the innocent party. If there is no adultery and you're both Christians, you cannot divorce. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 on down to 16 there, he deals with a lot of issues there. That do not depart, and the depart is for the purpose of divorce. But if you do depart, you stay unmarried. If you choose, now many Christians take First Corinthians 7 and say, well, that's the principle of uh, separation. No, it isn't. There's no option. There's no provision for separation. He says, if you don't want to obey, and stay together and make it work through dying to self, and you choose to leave in disobedience, you must stay single. You're married, but you're living like single. You cannot date, you cannot get remarried, or you'll be committing adultery. Is that clear? All right? And so he lays it out. Now, if you're a Christian, 
and you're married to a non-believer, maybe you maybe that you came to the Lord um, afterwards that they're, they're a non-believer, and then you know you were married, and then you came to the Lord, they didn't, and they don't want to remain married to you because you're a Christian. Then the Paul says, then you as a believer, if the non-believer doesn't want to stay with you because you're a Christian, then you're set free. Okay? So when you're unequally yoked, either because you married a non-believer disobedient, or you came to the Lord after you got married in the world, either way, if the non-believer doesn't want to remain with you because you're a Christian, you are able to be set free. You can't force a non-believer to stay with you. But if you're both Christian, you're busted. All right? So before you get married, you better look beyond the face and the body or you'll turn around one day in bed and that's all you have. All right? You have to count the cost. It's real simple. Now many Christians don't want to hear what I'm saying, but it's all right. It doesn't matter. I'm old and I don't care anymore. Doesn't matter. It's the way it is. Okay? And so Malachi, it just comes down representing God here, man. You weary me with your words, your tears. Wow. I hate divorce, it covers your garment with violence. The garment was the pledge that you said. You threw your garment over your wife. And I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. Remember Boaz and Ruth? Same thing. And now you've reneged on that. You've abandoned or you traded in for the new model. So that's treachery. God is looking for a godly offspring. That's what he wants. Previous verse. And 17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied you? Wow. Or him. In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Wow. They're saying, hey, listen, all these guys that are divorcing their wife, God, sheesh. They're, they're, they're good guys. God, God, God thinks they're good. And they're, they're a delight. They're a pleasure in his sight. Really? And he says, the proof of it is, why God hasn't wiped me out? Be patient. He'll get to you. In no hurry. Wow, blasphemous. This kind of stuff's happening today, ladies and gentlemen, inside the church. As people are teaching, so contrary to the word of God. So contrary to what God demands of us. Verse 17 is a transitional verse. A lot of commentaries put it as verse 1 of the next chapter, but it's a transition. It looks backwards, it looks forward. Where they're making God one with his sin. They're wearying him with their words. Blasphemous. Even as people today say, oh yeah, well, you know, hey, you can drink as a Christian, nothing wrong. Hey, you can fornicate. You can be a homosexual. Really? Wow. What Bible are you reading? Hmm. But that's the world we live in, ladies and gentlemen. It's been like that before. It's just our turn. We're up at bat. And as I look at the world, we're at a full count right now. <laughs> Top of the ninth. Uh, there's two outs and I've got three balls and two strikes. And the pitcher's winding up. <laughs> Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness, your grace. Thank you for tonight and thank you for every person that you've brought. And Lord, we pray you continue to work in us and we continue to yield to you, pressing towards the mark. You saw Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, for your glory, to reach many for your gospel, Lord. 
As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the internet, then the same goes for you. God loves you. He died for your sins. And if you believe that Jesus is God who became man and took your place on the cross and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can call upon him and he will save you. With the heart one believes, with the mouth confession is made. We're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. We don't deserve salvation. He gives it to us. We deserve hell. But he's willing to give you eternal life if you believe what he said he did for you. If this is your decision to be born again, then this is your prayer to him, not to us, but to him. And he's going to save you right now and forgive you of all your sins. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.